Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hope everybody's doing well. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. And today we have a friend calling in from Cambridge, England, but he is from San Francisco, and his name is Giles Yo. Welcome to the show, Giles. Thank you so much for having me. So we were talking a little bit prior to the introduction and thinking about, you know, your history of what you learned in life and, and then kind of that translating to a narrative of what you're doing now. How does that break down for you? You know, as a, there was no grand plan. I mean, I, I was good in biology in school and so ended up doing biology in, in college. And I, I did college in, um, uh, at UC Ber University of California at Berkeley. And actually, it was in my, I think it must have been end of my sophomore year or beginning of my junior year. I did a class, um, a lab, lab class on, um, fruit flies. And it was a genetics class. And what happens is you could take the fruit flies and some had red eyes and some had white eyes and some, you know, and we were meant to just cross them. We're doing genetics. Okay. We're trying to understand genetics, but rather than doing it from the textbooks, we were actually doing the genetics. And when I did that, that class, I says, wow, this is what I want to do. And so I ended up specializing in genetics when I was in college. And then when I came to want to do my PhD and I ended up in Cambridge, um, that's why I did my PhD in, in, in molecular genetics. So I went even smaller, molecular genetics. And then after I did that, the, the problem was I did my PhD on Japanese pufferfish. I know, let's not go there. Very niche. Very, it wasn't going to pay my mortgage. And I realized it yeah. wasn't going to pay my mortgage. Um, and then um, by chance, I, was, I, I left when I got my PhD. Um, I needed a job. And I went knocking on doors in the department. And the second uh, a door I knocked on was a, was a lab of a guy called, he's still my head of department today, uh, Stephen O'Rahley. And he had just discovered the first couple of genes that when mutated caused really severe obesity in kids. And he needed a geneticist. And so it was entirely by chance. I was a geneticist in the right place at the right time. He hired me and I started working on severe childhood obesity and then segued into what I do now, which is, which is normal body weight and how our brain controls food intake. So that, that, that's how it started by chance. But then you sort of get into it and it was, I found it interesting. We had a little bit of success. And so you stay in it a bit longer. And then 25 years later, I, I still study food and tech. Trying to adjust things that are made and, and you're dealing with what you're given. Do you ever look at factors of environment? And when I say environment, that, that's multiple things. It's not, it's not what you see. Uh, maybe it's not what you don't see. Maybe it could be multiple things, you know, and then a then a lineage type piece to that equation. How does that translate into what you do? So when whenever I say I'm a I study genetics, I study genes, people think I then become deterministic, right? People people think that geneticists say, Oh, if you have gene X, you are going to be Y. You're gonna look like this, you're gonna be this tall, etc. But that's that's not true. 
I think that what our genes do is to interact with this environment you're talking about. Okay, now, and it interacts with all elements of the environment. How rich or poor you are? Are you cold? Are you stressed? Um, you know, what kind of work do you do? What kind of food do you eat? And our genes interact with that. Um, and so we have to consider the environment in everything, in everything that we study. And, and this includes your... Uh, as, as I said, the actual built environment, do you, do you work in the city? Do you work in the country? Do you work in, you know, and what you do? Do you like to exercise or not? Are you a parent? Do you have kids or not? And most importantly, because this has one of the biggest effects, whether or not you're rich or poor. And if you're poor, that ends up increasing your risk for so many different diseases, so many different things, including obesity, compared to if you're rich. And the interesting thing about rich and poor is that there is no genetic difference between if you're rich or poor. It's an accident of birth, okay, accident of birth. And so that is a classic example of an environment which influences your genes. And so now I am very interested in the environment. When you understand that and you understand narratives that manipulate that position, because mm. I'm a big I'm a big believer in a position of influence. And if you create a big enough position of influence, you can determine a lot of things. And if you have a big enough number of something, it's kind of like by law, if you use the law of attraction and you have two sides of something, people usually want to split something, you know, like our two-party system that I don't believe in. But mm -hmm. people you usually want to, you know, especially when it comes to science, they want to have two, two sides to pick from. So by law of attraction, you pick a side wherever you go, then you create a pocket narrative because you know this pocket narrative is going to push this side of the coin in a certain direction. This pocket narrative over here with this law of attraction type of personality is going to push people in this direction. Can you dissect that? You know, even though it's rich or poor, you have narratives in society that almost perpetuate a situation that makes human beings carry some type of weight, you know, that, that realigns your molecular body because they're carrying this weight because of this narrative they're hearing. And, and it's a consistent thing of carrying heaviness, heaviness, heaviness. Why don't we look at narratives within a society that drive home those issues that could help your situation with what you do? So I think, you, I think you're absolutely right, because the environment is not only there. It does begin to change you. I don't, I'm not necessarily saying it changes you genetically, but it does begin to change you, right? Because if you don't mm -hmm. believe, if you don't believe you can succeed or, what, or whatever you, you, you want to talk about, if someone keeps telling you you won't succeed because you are X or you are Y or you're this color or what, or what have you, I think after a while, particularly if a number of, it has occurred over a number of different generations, you begin to believe it. Even mm -hmm. though that, and, and that I think is a, is a really classic, um, classic example. And so, I mean, I study food intake, which is a little bit less deep than, than, than whether or not you can succeed or not. But for example, all right, I study the genetics of whether someone is going to end up with obesity or not, but it's not mm -hmm. deterministic. And we know that if you are rich, you are less likely to have obesity compared to if you're poor. And so the question is why? And then you can, you can see this pushing the narrative. Well, if you're poor, you don't, um, you live in different parts of town. The parts of town you live in may not have the good supermarkets, the good grocery stores. They may not carry, you know, um, fresh vegetables. 
And so just by that and where you're living, suddenly you're being driven down this other path where you're having a poorer diet. You're having, you know, lousier food. The food is cheaper, but it's lousier, you know, compared to if you're rich and then you live in a nice place, you go to a farmer's market, you go to Whole Foods, you know, and, and that is the exactly what, 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 what you are talking about, what you've just raised, where even though it's, it, it, it starts as something simple, like you have more money or less money, that then completely interacts with your life and then influences. Then suddenly you end up with obesity, you end up with arthritis, you end up with a certain cancer. How the hell did that happen, right? Mm -hmm. And just because you were rich versus you were poor. Because if you tie them back to the, the human mind, mm. right, and if we could somehow, because I, and the reason I brought that up, because science, if you look at, you know, sometimes science, you look at the numbers, you look at the numbers and you see what you see, but the things you don't see may have a big percentage in the game. And obviously what you do when it, you're kind of, to, it, you're looking at the data you're receiving and, and you're start, have a start point. But sometimes if you look beyond that start point and that foundation, you know, I think there's a deeper dive there. There is a deeper dive, but the problem is it's difficult. Not that we shouldn't do it. We have to do it. Yeah. Because if you study genes, they don't change. They, they're the same the day you're born, the same the day you die. And so we can look at them whenever we want. The problem with this environment, as you, as, as you raise, it changes every single day. It changes from the moment you start breathing to the moment you stop breathing. And so it's a moving target. And so trying to understand how it works is trying to shoot a moving target. I think we have to do it. I think we have to be better at it. But it will always remain, I think, difficult because it changes every single second. I have quantum physics coming through, and I've read one book and half the Bible. Sometimes these things I talk about, even my parents are like, you never had any education on this stuff, or you never did this. I'm like, I don't know. It's just rationale. Dialing in and, and, and coming up with these scenarios, at the end of the day, they make sense. You know, let's streamline this to this diet mm. of what you're doing. How does your philosophy stand out compared to another philosophy? This, this, this is the interesting thing. So I think if, you, if you're um, interested in becoming healthier, okay, or losing weight or whatever it is, but most people want to be healthy, right? This is why do you want to be unhealthy? Um, a large part of being healthy is going to come down to your diet. And so my interest has always been, how do you measure a healthy diet? How, how do you tell someone to eat a healthy diet? Um, and we can talk about any number of di different things, but a very, very easy measure to use that everyone uses, that many people use, are, is the calorie. Okay. And so I began thinking about this, right? Because, because if you go and if you have a very big, you know, now you have to have calorie counts like at every restaurant. You, you, you go to the fast food place, you go to whatever, there are calories there. Now, does eating more calories necessarily mean that the food is bad for you? And does eating, it le does eating less cal fewer calories make it better for you? And I think, I think the answer clearly is no. This is where I'm, I'm going with. But because of the way calories are used, people automatically see that. High calorie numbers equals bad. Low calorie numbers equals good. And so this is where I began to think. And, and the stuff I write in my book, Why Calories Don't Count, I, I didn't invent, right? I, I didn't invent. I didn't come up with that. I just did the research. I was thinking about things. And so I think we need to have a different way, a better way of 
measuring the quality of our diet rather than worrying about necessarily the quantity of food we're eating only. You obviously need to worry about that as well. But I think we should be worrying about the quality of our food. And so that's what I've been thinking about. How do we have an easier way, a more equitable, a more equal way? We're talking about rich or poor people a more equal way of ensuring that everybody has a healthy diet. And that's, that's what got me into writing this book. When you take the word calorie that everybody's used to, and it's integrated and was created by, I think it was created by our government. I don't know where that came from, but I, I've heard from like, you know, superfoodists and naturalists that calories was a system to push the needle in the capitalism world. So when you think about that, we're tying calories to a human body and what they eat when the human body has different makeups and percentages. But that word calorie ties back to an environmental narrative. And that's kind of what I was trying to tap into. Tying back to that environmental narrative kind of pushes a direction that could offset the way we know it and the way we look at it in the science community. That's kind of like, because you're really tapping into it, but that is that is a controlled narrative. It is a controlled narrative. I mean, so, so the, the calorie was a term that was invented um, in the late, well, actually, late 1700s. It was used as a measure of heat. Then a guy called um, William Atwater, Wilbur, sorry, Wilbur Atwater, who was a, someone from Connecticut, went to Germany for a sabbatical in the late 1800s. He came back with this idea of the calorie and, and food. And so he then ended up measuring what all the calorie content of food by in effect burning food and then feeding the food to people and then burning the people's poop. Okay. And so you knew what went in, you knew what came out and he began to, to, to work on the concept of the calorie and he worked for a government organization. Okay. He worked for one of these, um, his goal was to try and improve the, improve the nutrition of the people. Then what happened when the government really took hold of the calorie in order to drive home the point post world war two, when people needed to really begin thinking about, um, certainly in Europe, in particular in Europe, where there was rationing and there was this, and how do you improve the diets? And in the and during the war, how do you make sure that everyone has enough to eat? They begin to use the calorie. Then peacetime came, and then people started thinking about calories, and then obesity happened, and so that's how it actually got 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 rolled in. It was always meant to try and improve the diet of the people. But then it became weaponized by the diet industry. That's what happened. What kind of bad deals did we do after World War II? Because everything is, it seems like everything was hijacked after World War II. World War II, as, as you might imagine, World War II changed a lot. But for the United States, because the United States was, aside from, from um, Hawaii, Pearl, Pearl, Pearl Harbor, mainland was never attacked. It didn't have any war damage. And so it suddenly became very rich. And, and I think a lot of it has actually come from there, where the Americans were suddenly rebuilding parts of Europe, rebuilding parts of Japan. They became very, very rich. They were then in a, in, in a position to begin to push narratives, um, um, you know, to, 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 to control what was a healthy food versus what was not a healthy food. So I think that was where it began. Now, then people started, I don't know the full history of the diet industry, but then people started using the information and and begin, I would call it making mistakes. They begin to oversimplify some of the, uh, the diet industry begin to simplify because it's easier to sell a product if you're saying that, oh, you know, what you need to eat is less of this 
you know, or don't eat this, or this is what you got to count. Whereas, mm -hmm. and, and that's why it's easier to sell. Whereas in reality, a good diet is actually quite a complex thing. And it depends on who you are. That doesn't make money. Complexity mm -hmm. doesn't make money. Well, it was, a, it was the Chicago Board of Trade, you know, Chicago Board of Trade. Mm. You know, they got involved in the food system, which was owned by a certain family. I won't mention their names, but then they started, you know, they came out with the TV dinners and they started, you know, the way they canned food and, and things like that. And the person who was at default for the canned food was Napoleon, just as a history note there, because that's, that's the way he won all the wars because his guys survived, but the canning was not good for food. But, but if you look at it, Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and, and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. Everything since 1950, after World War II, where there's UFO technology was hijacked, the food system was hijacked. I just hear about, you know, because you can look at the cancer rate from 1955 on when people started cooking, you know, cooking less at home and so forth, just took off, you know. So that's why, I, you know, I'm not trying to take away from what you're you're doing, but the fact you understand that to me is very foundational and has some real, some real weight there. You know, but is a, lot it, things, a lot of things don't have that kind of foundation thought process. But you, you, you say that, and then I say things, I'd like to think I am uh, a relatively sane and sensible person, I'd like to think, okay? But then you say things like, listen, you know, calories, just go with the calories for a second, like, like, like calories tell you how, so clearly 200 calories of like potato chips is going to be twice the amount of 100 calories of potato chips. And so everyone thinks that that's all that matters. But when I say that calories don't tell you about the quality of the food, the number of people that refuse to listen, 
is incredible. They're thinking, oh, you know, you, I, I'm anti-physics. I'm not anti-physics. You know, you are, you, you, it, it, the, the people who don't like me in particular are the gym bros. Um, and because the calorie, you, you know, the people who count their calories to within an inch of their uh, inch of their life, they think that I'm trying to change their world. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just trying to improve mm -hmm. people's diets. I mean, that's a question for you talking about your schooling is, mm. is how did you adapt this mindset coming from a, a, a very high education, coming from a, a, a scientific world? How did you adapt this for you and, and put this in, in writing form for the book? It was initially a challenge. You're right, because I write scientific papers that no one reads, right? Like, like my, my other scientists read, like no one will ever read it because it's just, it's very, very dense and it's very, very technical. But what I thought was, if I'm only writing there, then who's understanding any of this information? No one's understanding the information because they don't, they just don't have the background, right? In, in order to do it. And that got me thinking, well, I think that we've got to be able to communicate the science better. And I tried. I don't know how well I, I, I've done necessarily, but I like to think that at least I've, I have taken out some of the jargon um, so that people begin to actually understand um, dietary science um, a bit more. I try to simplify it, simplify it, yet yeah. inform people about the complexity of it. And talking about this now, like when you're mm. trying to, and this is another thing I forgot to say too. I, I came up with this thing with this quantum physics I have coming through. Is there's two two thought processes. There's a discovery mindset, and then there's a creation mindset. If you come at things from a creation mindset, you can get to the answer a lot quicker. Most people in this world are probably 98% of the people come from a discovery mindset. It's harder to figure out. It's a longer process. Speaking to the science world, when I've taught, this is something, this is, this is something I rationalize talking to multiple scientists, I guess. When you go back to the environment, they kind of only know their environment and they appease their, you know, they appease their own environment within their own industry. And they're not utilizing some of the sources outside of their environment or their lane of study to connect the dots. This is probably something for your narrative that you should use because the perception, this, I think what we're breaking down now, the perception may not be realized to the consumer about what you're, you're really doing, that little piece of the puzzle. So I think there, I, I would like to hope that not all scientists are as you just described, but many are. So what, like, short-sighted, blinkered, and they only think about what they do. So, and that's true for a lot of scientists, but I, I, I would like to hope that more and more scientists are now thinking broader, thinking widely, having more perspective, because I think that's what we lose. We lose as scientists when you are stuck in your lab um, and only worried about your own p little project and, and, and doing that, you lose perspective. And I think that is one of the most dangerous things you can do because the moment you lose perspective, the moment you lose what everyone else is experiencing, then what you do becomes irrelevant. And so you need perspective to make sure that what you research and what you study has relevance because why do it if it's, if it's irrelevant? Because I think people are scared of the veil sometimes when, because when you hear the words or whatever. And if you can translate past that veil and make it relatable to the masses, you know, then it's a different thing. I mean, I deal with multiple types of personalities, you know, and, and there's certain ones that may respond to something. There's certain ones that may not. So I don't know. It could just be something to think about. I mean, what's your ultimate goal with the book and, and, and so forth moving forward? 
I mean, the ultimate goal is, what do we know? We know at the moment that the vast burden, the vast majority of non-infectious diseases, okay, are as a result of diet, poor diet. Okay, this includes obesity, certain heart diseases, certain cancers, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And so if we actually manage to fix our diet, to have a better diet, okay, and, and these diseases are relatively, in terms of in how many people have it, are relatively modern, probably only in the past 30, 40 years that so many people have these diseases. So my ultimate goal is to and I'm not going to fix it by myself, but my ultimate goal is to try and improve people's diets so that we can reduce this burden of, of sickness and illness that is due to diets. So that's the ultimate aim. And, and to do it, and to do it fairly. Because at the moment, what happens is people who are rich, I go back to rich and poor again, people who have more resources, have more income, have more money. You choose what you want to do. We have access to better things, but we're leaving a lot of people behind. And, and that, so ultimately, that's it, to improve the diets of everybody fairly. It's my ultimate goal. If people could follow the guidelines, what kind of percentage would it cut down on the death rate, would you think, if, it was, if this was proposed to the masses? So that's a very interesting question. Let, let me, can I answer specifically for obesity and then we can sort of work backwards? All right. Yeah. So if you actually take the top 20% of society, uh, socioeconomically. Okay. So, so in terms yeah. of just, just, just earning, they have less than half the rates of obesity and many illnesses than people at the bottom 20%. Okay. Less than half. So in other words, if you become, if you, be, if you remove poverty, you can almost halve the rates of disease. Okay, certainly for obesity and other diet-related diseases. I don't know how that actually relates to death. By fixing something like poverty, we can nearly half the rates of disease before even figuring out drugs, before, before changing this and changing that, just by making someone less poor. We can fix that. So I think that tells you a lot. I think that's criminal. Right, because that means that there are a lot of diseases out there that that scientists like me are trying to work out funky drugs, you know, and 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 working through all the science. But actually, we can halve disease, halve disease by just making people less poor. I believe in prevention. Mm. I believe, yeah, I believe you can prevent a lot of diseases, which is not sold to us. It's hard to cure a lot of them, you know. Uh, and I think in America, where I said this one time, we're one of the only countries that. Fights to kill you and fights to keep you alive. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, but, what are we talking about? You know? But prevention, but prevention is the big deal. The big deal. It's, but the problem is it's boring. It's expensive. And I don't think anyone is doing it particularly well, prevention. People do. You're right. Because it's easier to sell a cure right? Here's someone who has a disease or is large or is what have you. So therefore you need this in order to cure yourself. But if you are not, if you don't have a disease yet, I think it's a more difficult sell for a government at least in order to say, well, we need to spend money or resources or something to stop this person becoming ill. But it says, but this person's not ill. Why do we have to worry about this person if he or he, she's not ill? But we will solve so many things by preventing because you're right. It's far easier to, to, to not get ill to begin with, to not get sick to begin with, rather yeah. than to try and worry about it after. And, and where's your family? Where's family from? And, and where, what's the whole, whole deal with the lineage and so forth? And where do you, you know, how did you get this passion? That, you know, did you think when you're five years old, 
that you'd be talking about this kind of stuff. No, 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 I did not. So my, my, um, my grandparents, but all four of my grandparents are from China. Um, and then they moved to Singapore, which is where my parents were born because of work or whatever. And then my dad was a doctor. Okay. And so I then, the reason I was in San Francisco, my dad was in California and then I popped, uh, you know, then, then I was raised there. And so I probably, I did want to be a doctor in a, as in a teenager, but because my dad was a doctor, but then I didn't end up going down that route. I ended up realizing I preferred science to, um, to be to medicine was 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 my thought. I I I rather try and understand things, and so I ended up doing a PhD instead. With this book and, and this philosophy, it added a piece to the puzzle for me that I haven't heard. Just cause, and and not whether it's right or wrong. It's a, it's just something I haven't heard. I just like to rationalize pieces of the puzzle because I've been around people who say they're vegans and and superfoodists and naturalists and shamans and this and that. For years and years, but I think when you understand the percentages, right, and you put this into the puzzle, a lot of information out there that I don't think we relish. How, how are we going to get people to relish this information? And 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 what are you trying to do the next couple of years to do that? I think that's isn't that the sixty-four million dollar question? I mean, I yeah. think that there is a. I mean, we are obviously trying to generate more information, but there is a lot of information out there that's just not. You're right, not being relished, not being taken up. And I think that's the difficulty. How do we sell information? How do we get people to absorb the information? And I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, obviously, I write a book, but that already selects for the people who will go out and buy the book and read it, right? And that's only a very small percentage of the people. I guess I'm speaking to you. And so this then captures the people who are, who like to listen to a podcast, who, who, who do that. But that still leaves a lot of people. And I don't know if I know the answer yet, but that's what we've, that's what we've got to do. We got to work out a bit. I, I speak at schools. I speak at this and that. I, we need to find a better way of getting people who to like the information or to want to absorb the information. We've uh, dissected people so much. It's hard. It's hard to put them to change that mindset for some reason. And I see this all the time. I see it with my podcast. I mean, my podcast has information like you know unearthing people and and foundations and percentages of life and it's almost too smart maybe it's a a dictionary and uh, you know when i'm long gone or something i don't know so i I understand what you mean there i mean i think that we we keep going right isn't it that that, that's the whole point and and every day hopefully when you do this and when i do when you do what you do and when i do what i do if we change a couple of people's minds every day then we sort of plot along that that's the way that I see it. I thought it's one of these. I've been in this business now thirty years, and and I don't know how many people's minds I've changed, but you no. Know, hopefully, I feel like I'm gonna leave some good when I'm when I'm gone. That's that's my that's my aim. I'm trying to make everyone's diets just a little bit better by the time I'm gone. That's that's. I don't know if that is that a very lofty aim. Is that a very high aim? I don't know, but that's what I want to do. I think it comes from a pure source, and I think that there's so much bullshit out there in today's time that there's no more narratives left. And if you don't, you know, re, I say rebirth or birth things the right way, this is when this type of information, I think, takes hold. I think we're to a point uh, that we have to do that. You know, I'll, I'll put that in perspective, right? That people need to listen, you know, to something that has a pure source behind it and, and a rational 
narrative that can connect the dots. I think people are going to have to change, but when you look at AI, right, and understand what AI is, mm. if it's architectural, if it's mathematical, grammar could be opinionated, whatever. But when you plug AI into a data system, uh, whatever company it is, so all these companies that are spending all this money, you're plugging into a data system, even though that the process is will speed up your process will speed up but with businesses and everything out there that are off 20 to 30 percent on who their true customer is mm -hmm. and not having a true source or a pure source to draw information from you're still going to have the wrong answers even though this ai has sped the process up you're still going to have the wrong answers so if you don't understand how to reset or, or you know rebirth or you or don't birth thing or you don't the right ask way. the right question or you don't ask the right question you're gonna get a crap answer too yeah hopefully maybe a that's a positive thing with ai that you know after these companies spend all this waste all this money the next three to five years for this type of ai usage and realize that hey we got to find out who our pure customer is who is our law of attraction and get to, you know, make things a little more simpler. You know, I think that's when this stuff is going to take effect. So hopefully we see that in our lifetime. You're what you are. You are an optimist, John. That's what I've realized now. You are an <laughs> eternal optimist. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just like talking to people and I, and I'm a clairsentient as well. A so clairsentient. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a clairsentient as well. Like I can, if I sit here mm. and talk to you, I, I I feel you. I understand you. It makes it easy because I don't even prepare for these interviews. It makes it easy, like within a conversation, to pick up and run something that's relatable to you. This is the most unique interview I've actually been on because normally, normally I go onto these interview podcasts. There is a series of questions they you, you throw right, and I have to give some facts and I have to give some info. Whereas you're making me think. Why are you making me think, you know, about these things? It's fantastic. It's really good. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I think it was a great conversation. Hopefully we opened some eyes and we're looking for the book. Where do we find the book and so forth? The book's found in all the normal places. I know people hate, some people hate Amazon, but it's definitely on Amazon. And the name, we got the... Why Calories the Don't Count. Name. Why Calories Don't Count. That's I just want to make sure we said that. That's right. So if you're looking for the book, Why Calories Don't Count. That's a big deal. And I think that's a, the fact you're cracking into that based on stuff I've heard for the past 20 years, I think is, is a big deal based on your foundation. I think your information comes from a pure source and it'll be interesting to see how far, far this narrative goes. So I wish you the best, man. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on the show. This has been Giles Yo, and I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. 